0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about coronavirus, today we brought in my colleagues Heather Conley and Steve Morrison. Steve, I want to go to you first. Italy made this decision to go from quarantining 16 million in northern Italy to going all the way to 60 million, the full country. Pretty drastic decision. Why did they make it?
1: I think we're still trying to sort that out, but one clear reason is that the subnational approach they were proposing of 16 million in the north, in the Milan, Lombardy, Veneto, Venice area, simply was not going to work. People were flooding out of the zone, going south. The health system was overwhelmed and at risk of collapse, and they came to a decision that they needed national state solution, not a sub-national solution. They had to have the power and resources at that level and to put it in that context that otherwise they were trying to fix a problem in one zone and it was migrating to other parts of the country and contradicting the whole idea that you could carve out just one zone within the country. That's my sense. Keep in mind that what what's driving the crisis in Italy is the demographics. You have this huge proportion of very elderly folks, uh, and you have a very fragile health system. So that combination of advanced aging and a very fragile health system created this enormous vulnerability, and it was at risk of collapse, and that prompted this middle-of-the-night decision over the weekend to close off the the north, and then the decision, less than two days later, that we're going to just go nationwide. Heather, what do you think?
2: Yeah, Steve, I, I think you're absolutely right. And in, in some ways, this goes back to the failure over the weekend when a document was leaked that was announcing the quarantine of the 16 million in, in northern Italy. That leak led people to flee northern Italy by plane, by train, by car. And I think they understood, even by Monday was the first time that the Cabanari was being placed on highways and things like that. So it was it basically they didn't quarantine the 16 million. Uh, there's For those all, of
0: us who don't speak Italian, that's the police, The correct? military police, military yes. Military police, yes. okay, got
2: um, it. But, you know, today there are planes leaving Italy going to Heathrow, and so um, I think it was a recognition that they couldn't contain the red zone, so they decided to create a, an all Italian red zone, and to, to create a little bit of equality. Uh, again, tensions, political tensions between northern Italy, southern Italy, they will play out over the course of the pandemic. So I think absolutely what Steve was 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 saying is true. But what we're seeing now is neighboring countries taking matters into their own hands. So uh, this morning, the Austrian government announced the closure of the border between Austria and Italy, the only way an Italian can cross that border is if they have a medical certificate allowing them that's to cross. that's in breach of Schengen. Correct. So uh, now what you're seeing is the neighboring countries beginning to enforce this in, in, a, in a very ad hoc way. And I think, again, going back to what, what Steve was saying on the bed situation, I think in part some of the dramatic decisions we've seen this government take over the last 48 to 72 hours has to deal with a crisis of of hospital beds ICU units. The healthcare system now, because of the numbers, are becoming overwhelmed. They're having to select which patients have to are able to be on ventilators, needing to slow this down. So I, I think all of these issues have really created this sense of, of urgency you put on top of that. Yesterdays and, and earlier Sundays, some of the prison riots. I mean, there's a fragility to this right now. As a government that's under enormous pressure, a government that is already very fragile, A coalition that is trying to manage the best they can, but they are stumbling through this.
1: um, It's interesting that the scale is so similar to Wuhan, Hubei province, right? I mean, we've got now 60 million Italians under this very um, Italian form of quarantine to compare with what happened in China. So, tell us a bit more about like what's the model for this? Because this people are going to work, planes are still flying, but people's daily lives are changing profoundly.
2: Exactly. So, uh, what you basically see is a is a whole scale cancellation of sporting events, religious services, anything that requires a uh, large uh, gatherings. They've now put in place social distancing, where you have to be a meter between individuals. But they're allowing people to, you know, use public transportation to to get to work. Uh, basically, you cannot be in restaurants or shops past six p.m. every night. Mm-hmm. And as I said, they're trying to manage this as best they can, but but again, people are traveling, planes are leaving, things are are moving as normal. They're trying to keep this delicate balance of not panicking people, trying to keep a semblance of economic uh, motion going forward. But uh, you know, seeing these scenes of you know a, a deserted uh, Venice, uh, it is eerie. I have to yeah. say, when you see these very crowded tourist spots, absolutely empty. But
1: hopefully, that sort of ice, is- that sort of social isolation, or Bringing down the levels of interaction will slow transmission, but they're also trying to ease the pressure on the health system, which as you said, I mean, it was coming unhinged. Yes. The the demands of those who were in extreme illness and at risk of death had just skyrocketed, and the system was overwhelmed, and they had to do something to kind of rein that, pull that back in and, and dampen the curve, the, the rate of growth of infections. We don't know if that's going to work. But it is something that's reliant much more – it's a liberal democratic model. It's much more reliant on individuals agreeing to comply by these new rules. There are penalties, right? They have police – giving out, if you have to, if you go from one community to the next for work, you got to carry a certificate with you and you can be fined And
2: three months of jail, potentially. I mean, again, this is also uh, cultural. Uh, Some cultures, uh, you know, very much follow government rules and regulations. The Italian culture, I don't want to overgeneralize, but sort of prides itself on a little bit of being, uh, you know, ignoring some of those uh, government specified uh, rules. So you're absolutely right. We're seeing some of that tension of of culturally um, not always following the rules. And I think that as this breakout was happening, they were not perhaps following the government guidance as closely. But now these draconian measures, I think, have very much sobered people. They're trying to be uh, cognizant of the social distancing norms. But again, this goes until April 3rd. (laughs) This This isn't just a sort of a, it's like a snowstorm here. Oh, we've got 24 hours, we'll hunker down. This is a long-term issue. So as we watch this unfold until April 3rd, I have to say, I mean, I, I hope things progress, uh, that, that normalization can return after April 3rd. But for Christians, Holy Week and Easter, that is a very important time for all observant countries, particularly Italy with the Vatican. This is a very significant religious week. And I hope that they wouldn't have to you know, extend this quarantine, red zone period uh, into the Easter celebrations, which would, again, prohibit gatherings to celebrate uh, that important religious holiday. Well, I
0: wanted to ask you, Heather, are people in Italy panicking at this point? I mean, contrasting it, you know, people in the United States aren't quite panicking yet. People in the United States are c- certainly concerned and growing more concerned by the day. Where's the public in Italy right now? That You, you know, you said they're starting to follow the rules more closely. But how are the people feeling? Are they? Is the population panicked yet?
2: This is just very anecdotal. I'm communicating with with Italian colleagues, think tank partners, things like that. Um, so this is certainly not representative. I, you know, I, I think it's everyone is very very sobered. They're very worried about family members. And I think some of the decisions when the um, the northern Italian quarantine went into effect, the decision of, do you go to northern Italy if you have family there, elderly parents, grandparents, to be with them? Do you try to get out uh, and to, to stay away from it? These are very, very difficult decisions. Under the best of circumstances, the type of measures that this government has taken would be extraordinary on the best of political, economic healthcare systems. And you have to understand this is happening when Italy politically, very fragile, economically was already going into recession at the end of 2019, has really not seen appreciable amounts of economic growth for 20 years. Um, You have a populist nationalist uh, movement that uh, was born in Northern Italy and Lombardy. So you have all of these factors. That play into both the government's crisis uh, response as well as the population's understanding of, you know, does there do they have confidence in the institutions and the government? Uh, will they respect the rules? So this is what I we we need to carefully watch over the next several weeks of how this plays out politically. This government is under enormous stress. How this, you know, economically devastating for Italy, uh, which is really not good news, could could set off potentially another European economic crisis the, with its origins in, in Italy. And again, underneath this populism, xenophobia, nativism that we have seen play out, there will be a role to play in this over the coming weeks. So lots of things to watch, but right now, sobering, managing it, let's watch
1: it. On this question, Andrew, that you raise about how does the Italian population look at this, we need to remind ourselves that this whole thing evolved at rocket speed. And the intervention is coming late, right? There was a slow, sluggish, complacent response to the early phase of this epidemic. The transmissions got way out in front of the Italian government. They then... In, in began the first lockdown 50,000 11 villages that didn't work they didn't get control over it then they did this this sudden 16 million and then sudden 60 million so they're racing in and trying to be very aggressive but they're coming in really late and they're way behind and they're not explaining much to a public about this, they're not exactly going through a long process of consensus building before they get to this point. And we know there's been lots of tensions between the provinces, the federal government, and the municipalities. There's been a lot of criticism, a lot of churning in this. And so here we are, this is the first major Western democracy to go down this path. And it's very interesting what what they're experimenting to do, but it's very uncertain uh, is if this is going to work. And if people are going to comply and whether the economy can be stabilized and whether the infection rates can be moderated to some degree to create some space on a health system that is on the edge of collapse. That's sort of where we are. It's amazing to watch from a distance and it will have lessons for that will inform us if things get out of control in Washington state
0: or anywhere else in this country. So this is what I wanted to ask both of you. As we watch this unfold, um, today, Spain suspended its parliament because one of its members is infected with COVID-19. Norway slashed 3,000 flights because of the disease. Here in the United States, we're battling this hour by hour. What can we learn from what's going on in Italy and what we're seeing in Europe? What
2: we're seeing is um, many different governments managing this in different ways. And so I think that sort of gives this, there's now becoming this very much of an ad hoc uh, mechanism. So there's not a huge amount of, when I'm watching the European Union itself, there's not a lot of, there's coordination and conversation, but really the governments have to take these steps and it's their healthcare system on the line, their border protection and and control. Uh, I think what we're seeing is because Italy was unaware of how rapidly this was going through. The spread now, it's now out. And, and so every country is managing this differently. Uh, some that are, I would argue, the least affected countries today, uh, Poland, the Czech Republic, they're taking incredibly aggressive steps right now, uh, which would not argue for the cases that we are seeing. The United Kingdom is taking a much more measured approach, although their
1: their numbers are much their lower. Their
2: numbers are much lower, but they know this is going to be uh, a spread. But they are managing this. There's sort of their three phases. There's there's really concern not to get ahead of themselves, leaving the experts moving forward. You have Germany, uh, Spain, France, sort of moving. You know. Sus- suspending, you know, universities and large gatherings, and managing the borders. So,
1: would I, you say, Heather, I, that yeah. France, Spain, Germany are at takeoff phase right now?
2: So, I would argue, certainly France is, and and Spain, Germany. Uh, I'm still watching carefully, mm-hmm. and then I put the the Netherlands and the UK again. Mm-hmm. Their case numbers are just lower. But they're jumping
1: by 25% Um, a day. They
2: are, which is why they are are anticipating right now this growing uh, effort. But again, uh, just taking, again, the example of the United Kingdom, the National Health Service is, this is the seasonal stress period where, again, because of seasonal flu. So this is hitting on top of a a very stressed healthcare system. They may not have beds. They may not have doctors to be able to do this. You're absolutely right. I think this is a little underappreciated in the Iran example, Uh, and of course, we have examples here of of, uh, uh, self-isolation for members of Congress, this starts paralyzing the institutions that have to make decisions uh, about whether that's economic stimulus, whether that's institutions uh, that are responding to it. So it'll be interesting to watch as parliaments Mm -hmm. uh, may have to suspend. The European Parliament didn't uh, have its movement to Strasbourg uh, because staff have been infected. So again, watching uh, the, the, the the head of the uh, Italian Democratic Party uh, has been uh, diagnosed with the uh, coronavirus. So this starts seeping yeah. into the political fabric and, and how does that point, affect decision making?
1: You know, there are six members of Congress who are self-quarantined. Most of them are tied back to the CPAC incident. Right, right the Republican the, gathering. and conservative in, in, public action right. uh, group, um, six members of Congress and uh, some of whom were proximate to the president. In that same period, so it raises all of these issues around. It, you know, this gets right up to the edge of the president. It raises all the issues around campaigning for Democrats and Republicans. Um, but in, in you, the point you were making, Heather, about the disruptions of parliaments, or you, you were making this point also, Andrew, there's discussions right now actively within within U.S. Congress about um, taking the recesses that are on the. Um, uh, on, on the boards coming up and extending them, so that you could have Congress out for a for a much longer period of time in order to try and go about managing it in that fashion.
2: Well, and um, just just to add the there's a uh, an election in, in Poland uh, for the Polish president. The election will be held May 10th. Uh, President Duda uh, who's running for re-election has just announced he's not going to be suspending rallies. That's an election for May 10th. The Polish president he's suspending not holding rallies uh, for his re-election efforts so this is going to start looking at Germany. Uh, The Christian Democratic Union is holding a party convention at the end of April to decide their new leader. Uh, Big questions about whether that would be held Uh, so again this will start impacting the electoral processes. It it has to. And
0: you have to wonder, we're in primary season for the Democrats right now, and you have to wonder, is it gonna affect turnout? Are people gonna come and turn out to vote in primaries? Are the two candidates remaining uh, in the Democratic primary, are they going to be shaking hands? Are they going to be going to rallies? Is President Trump, who you know pretty much every day on his schedule has a rally, is he going to eliminate the rallies from his schedule? And what's the ethics and public health
1: wisdom of continuing to have mass rallies, which totally contradicts the logic of social distancing, right? Right,
0: right. Well, so far, our, our politicians, President Trump, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, seem to be following CDC protocols, so we'll have to wait and see.
1: This carries over into all sorts of things, right? The the conference basketball tournaments, the NCAA Yep, March Madness is coming. March Madness is upon us. Uh, We've got all of these uh, moments in time where you're saying uh, tens of thousands of people are going to be convened in close quarters into confined congregational settings, whether it's for political purposes or for sports entertainment or for whatever. And when do we begin to to insist that these events be suspended? And what's the what are the rules and guidance going to be?
0: Right. I mean, you have 15,000, 15, 15 20,000 fans every night in an NBA arena. Um, just the other day, you had LeBron James saying, no fans, no play. Um, no fans. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna show up and play. And so, and, and I think President Trump thinks the same thing. If there's not gonna be anybody at the rallies, I'm not gonna show up. I'm gonna, you know, stay home and watch TV. <laughs> so, so. Well,
2: it's interesting watching the Italian case. So, how did they begin? They first started with uh, fanless sports events, uh, and then they stopped them completely. It's interesting. So there they is took an evolution
1: to stop all soccer. Which, you know, that's a pretty, in the Italian context, that's a pretty profound and dramatic Absolutely, step, right? Absolutely. Well, and
2: rugby match was just canceled uh, in the UK. St. Patrick's Day parades and gatherings have been canceled in Dublin. I just saw where Boston. the- North And Boston. Northern Ireland leaders are now not traveling this week to Washington mm-hmm. to participate in in those festivities. Uh, so, yes, I mean, we're rethinking everything. We're rethinking You'll know it's really serious
0: doing. when they canceled the St. Patrick's Day parade in New Orleans. Oh. You'll know that it's really serious if it's they cancel it. It's bigger than that. in Boston. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, I mean, it's just if they cancel it, it's not bigger than Boston. But if they cancel it, the, you'll know yeah. the, the seriousness. Yeah. Getting back to your question around
1: what are the lessons for us here coming out of Italy? Yeah, we're going to be, I think, cogitating, chewing that over, and then in the coming days as we watch things unfolding, and of course, coming in late is bad, right? Coming in early is good, coming in very aggressively early, getting the public to understand what you're trying to do, not repeating the mistakes that the Italians are – not coming in half baked in a sudden crash way in the middle of the weekend, in the middle of the night is a a poor way to sort of win public confidence and trust. You could look at the Italian case and say the solutions are going to have to be – at a very high level, making full use of the powers and authority of the state in order to solve this because localities get swamped, provinces get swamped. That, of course, for us begs the question, how's that gonna happen in our system because our system's so decentralized. Public health is localities and municipalities and states and at the level of this administration, it has it's, it's a bit chaotic and so when Governor Inslee is there facing a crisis in Washington and saying, you know this is this could very rapidly get much bigger than i am
2: well i think where is he turning to i think the other thing for me is it's Others also get a vote and how they're going to manage this. So it's not just the country itself. Uh, I'm thinking of, of uh, the Israeli government's decision. To, you know, Move anybody coming into yeah. this direction. I mean, yeah. they sort Quar- of it's like... Anyone coming, right, Europe, a- anyone. A-
0: anyone coming into to Israel is quarantined.
2: For 14 days. Yeah. And so I think this is some way... This is, you know, the Austrian-Italian case. You may want to continue to do a different type of business as usual, but other countries will also have a say yeah. in how they're going to manage it. And this is where this this international coordination becomes so vital. So we're not doing this ad hoc. And then, you know, first mover advantage, well, if someone does something draconian, does everyone have to follow that? And so that's when it gets very uneven as far as implementation. Right, and
0: I wonder, you know, are we yet taking it seriously enough in the United States? I mean, for instance, you know, here in D.C., um, we've had several inflection points. We've had the CPAC conference that you mentioned before.
2: Well, APAC, uh, We have too. the
0: APAC conference um, here in Washington. Um, I think all of us know someone who is uh, a member of the church in Georgetown, right. uh, whose minister has been um, infected. So, you know, are we taking this seriously enough? Well, there was a Reuters Ipsos poll that came out at the end of last week, which was
1: interesting. It showed four in ten Democrats— believed that this was a threat, that it posed a threat to the country, the coronavirus outbreak. Two in 10 Republicans believed it posed a threat. Now, you can look at those numbers and say, twice as many Democrats take this seriously than Republicans. You can also look at those numbers and say, 60% of Democrats still don't take it very seriously and 80% of Republicans don't take it very seriously. This was a poll, fairly
0: large poll, a lot of people uh, are not a taking a it seriously a few days ago released just a few days ago so that tells me that there's a bipartisan uh, consensus of not taking it seriously enough
2: well we need a bipartisan consensus that individuals now have to take responsibility i, mean, I like the you know the the british uh, keep calm and keep washing your hands keep following those guidelines avoid things that you don't have to do take responsibility, but that has to be a bipartisan message that this is serious, but you deal with it calmly yeah. and confidently, but you take it very, very there's one, seriously.
1: There's one important uh, thing that I think offers hope, which is you know, last week, members of Congress in both chambers and both parties came together and very rapidly expedited the $8.3 billion emergency supplemental and got it to the president's desk and got it signed into law. Right. Now, you can look at that and say, that is four to six weeks late, and why did it take us so long? Because the, that, as a as a milestone, that should have happened a month, um, at least a month earlier. But it happened, nonetheless, last week. And so, in a, as a reflection of consciousness and bipartisanship, it was an important signal of that reality. And last week, when we were up on the Hill, and the week before, interacting with members of Congress, and we testified at the full committee, on Homeland Security. We had a breakfast with the Aspen Group with 20 members of Congress. This was for your report. For the Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. We had a mix of Democrats and Republicans in both of those events, and they were deadly serious about all of this, and they were being civil and cordial with one another. So all of this sort of partisanship and toxic politics that you see in the airwaves was not translating in those contexts into that type of behavior. You had them asking very, very detailed questions of the experts who were, who were there uh, and engaging in a very serious deliberation at the same time that this legislation uh, was moving forward. The other thing I'd say is, you know, this morning you pick up the Washington Post, four of the five stories on the front page are on this topic. And then you look at the banner of stories inside and there's another 10 stories inside one day in the Washington Post. So the flood of stories and you know you watch last night I watched news and then nbc half of the stories half of the airtime was concerning this topic so it, it it's relentless yeah the coverage has been pretty extraordinary i mean the topic has become everything everywhere all the time somewhere along the way that the the data is going to change from 2 in 10 or 4 in 10 to something more in the majority around both Democrats and Republicans. I Do you think expect. the
0: media's hyping it up too much?
1: I think there's a little bit of uh, drama in the, uh, that you should expect in the, in the 24-7 cable ecosphere. I mean, you look back at, at what happened with Ebola in the fall of fourteen, which was also in a political cycle, and the c- cable networks fueled hysteria and panic, accompanied by other things. Trump's tweeting... White House fumbling, the fact that Ebola was scary as hell. and We had cases, outbreaks in Dallas, and we had all the other drama that was going on. So there's some measure in which the overheated media gets out there. But in my own estimation, this is truly dangerous and we don't appreciate it. So I don't say the media is stoking this and it's less serious than what it may seem. I have the opposite response in saying – yeah, the media is perhaps stoking a lot of fear, but people need to sit up and take this very seriously, much more so than they do well, have up It has now. so
2: many angles to it. So there's the economic angle to it. And again, you're, Steve, you're mentioning of the, the stimulus here. Uh, Italy just today had to increase the emergency uh, stimulus package to 10 billion euros. They're now suspending mortgage payments. Uh, they're tr- I mean, they're now trying to grapple with an economic crisis, a health crisis, which we don't want to translate into a political crisis, where government institutions become paralyzed or or so polarized uh, that they can't uh, do their function. So I think that, in some ways, is is the media saturation. There's so many different elements of this. It's the international story. It's the domestic story. It's an economic story. It's a health story. Uh, it's, a, it's a personal story of, of whether that's, uh, you know, elderly patients in a Seattle nursing home or on a cruise ship. You know, I, I think all of that just feeds into that never-ending cycle where it's hard to get balance and making sure you're well-prepared, well-armed, uh, but also, again, managing through this in a confident way not uh you know you're so physically or, or upset that you're not going to be able to think calmly and rationally well the
1: economic shocks from yesterday here and globally uh, were astonishing and it's translated into the president going to the hill this morning to talk to re- senate republicans about what are going to be the fiscal stimulus options and what other tax cuts and and they've already did the big monetary. You know, they dropped by to fifty base points last week at the Fed, the biggest drop since the 0809 crisis. So, to answer your question of, are people beginning to take this seriously? I, the accompanying economic crisis is fully in front of us,
2: particularly for the transportation industry, the airline industry. Uh, The shipping industry, tourism. For Italy, I speak more specific to that. Absolutely devastating. Of course, Northern Italy is the economic engine for Northern Italy manufacturing. 40% of Italian exports come from Northern Italy. So again, devastating in sort of two different ways uh, on an already very weak uh, Italian banking uh, system. And so not a lot of room for for error uh, in that setting as well. So and this our, could our own
0: airlines canceling flights and 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 hiring freezes and so on. So mm-hmm. we'll have to watch this very closely. Thank you both for being here uh, today. To be continued. Thank Thanks, you. Andrew.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts: from Into Africa, the Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys